click. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. I just wanted to make sure that it's <laughs> used the same. All right. And in three, two, you're listening to Feminist Killjoys, PhD, and our feminism, pop culture, and politics as discussed by two professional killjoys. I'm Rachel. And I'm Melody. And today we interview Molly Fran of the Firebrand Witch about narrative alchemy, what it means to be a cyborg witch, identity politics, call-out culture, and much more. But first, hey, Melody, long time no talk. How are you? I'm great. I really wish you would have just um, said what you wrote in your script. I thought it sounded appropriate. Yo, Melody, what's good? That is what I wrote. But then I got worried about appropriation. It's fine. I said said it to you. (sighs) Yeah, it's true. (sighs) What's up? What's new? It's been a while. Everything's fine. Everything's fine in our country. There's nothing going wrong. (laughs) Um, Everybody, (laughs) peace, love, and harmony. Yeah. It's just the media's fault. Everything's fine. I'm fine. I made a tap dance video this week because a local hip-hop artist, one of my favorite artists, Dessa, she wrote this 45 second rap song and then said, Hey, you all should make a music video with it. So I said, okay. So me and uh, Jones, friend of the podcast, friend of the, of me and Rachel helped me shoot it. And then we edited it. This makes it sound real fancy, but it's, it's very (laughs) DIY. And uh, we put it up on the internet yesterday. I tweeted it out using the FKJ Twitter account and yeah, it features me tapping. And then there's a cameo by my partner, Dakota. It's uh, I don't know. What do you think of it, Rachel? (laughs) I fucking love it. I love it so much. It's weird. And uh, I mean, weird in like the best way. And uh, feels I think the editing is really fucking cool. Like I think that was it was. Did you use Premiere Adobe Premiere? No, I used iMovie by Apple. Thank you. Got it. Okay, great. I yeah, I loved it. I think everybody should go to our Twitter and watch the vid. Because it's really fun. Well, thank I hope you. you win. When will you find out? Tomorrow already. They're OMG, gonna... did you see any of the competition? I did. I did. And everybody's is weird. And you know what I mean? There was another yeah. tap dancer and they're really, really? good at tapping. Oh. Yeah. But I mean, I, I but Dessa is really weird too. So like I would right. have no idea how to judge like who knows what right. their rubric is. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. It's a cash prize. And I was just happy to be creative over the weekend. Totally. That's Mo- awesome. Money's cool, but like the fact that Dessa watched my video is cooler. So totally, yep. Totally. So I'll let I'll let everybody know if I win. I have to check a blog. Like Laserbeak, the the CEO of Doomtree Records, which she's a part of, is gonna like post the winner tomorrow on his blog. So that's so cool. I guess I'll just check it every once in a while. I don't know. Yeah, that's great. Good luck. I'm sending all the good vibes. Thank you. And tomorrow's Tuesday, mm-hmm. so maybe. When you're listening to this, you can check Laserbeak's blog oh, yeah, and you can find totally. out for me. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> That's how I usually find out when I'm on the internet. I get an email. Did you know I just got uh, interviewed by Politico for about Keith oh, Ellison rad. again? I don't know why I'm a credible source for them, but... I love it. It's great. It's fine. I mean, I just share how I feel and yeah. I, I have feelings about Keith Ellison, but we can talk about that maybe next week with the election. Yeah. How are you doing? Well, it has been like a fucking eventful couple of weeks since we last recorded Two, I'm going to start with the sad stuff, which is, of course, the state of the world and the really tragic shit that happened this past weekend. And yeah, just obviously our thoughts and hearts and solidarity and commitment to fight is 
as high as ever with all of that. Um, and in addition, I lost two of my students in a car accident a couple of weeks ago at this point. That was brutal and just really, really hard to cope with and still is, but just, you know, moving through that. But I suppose on a much brighter note and totally sort of jarring transition, I guess. I did have a good friend in town this weekend. It was really nice to see. It's a friend from Boston, but he lives in Colorado so now. So it was just nice to see to see an old friend. We had a good time. We went to the trans, trans rights, trans visibility, sort of in Minneapolis, the action that they did was they wanted people to basically line Lake Street from the Minneapolis side to the St. Paul, which was mostly successful. There were some areas of Lake Street that were not full of people, but there was a whole bunch of people lining the streets in support of trans folks. And that was pretty cool. Um, Cop Watch was there. The Radical Marching Band was there. So good people to spend Sunday morning with. Let's see, other quick things. I found out I'm going to be a resident witch at the future, which is uh, the Minneapolis witch store that we love so much. So I'm super excited about that. And I got really good feedback from a pitch that I sent to a publisher with my memoir that I've been working on and dreaming on for a very long time. And so they want a sample chapter and a fuller proposal. And so I'm working on that now and feeling really excited about it. Um, this has been like such a big dream of mine and with this publisher in particular. So um, I'm super excited about that. And also before we go to the interview, this is also coupled with an ask for our listeners. The publishers like to see that people have strong followings, big bases of support that they can, we can, you know, sort of sell our book to basically. And so I would be so grateful if people headed on over to the gram and followed me if you don't already. And it feels weird, even for somebody who's gotten a little bit more used to self-promotion, certainly than you, Melody, it still feels weird to like ask for followers, but I really want to sell this book to the publisher. So I really would love any help I could get. And I think at this point, the biggest help would be expanding my Instagram following. So this is the world we live in. At Rebel Girl Rachel, R-E-B-E-L-G-R-R-L-R-A-E-C-H-E-L. I would be so grateful. So that's my update and my request. Clarifying question. Yes. How many Instagram followers is a lot? I think that's hard to say. You get that little check mark if you have, I think, 10,000. Somebody should correct me on that if that's wrong. Maybe it's more than that. I mean, what? certainly more than I have, I think is a lot. 10,000 to get the check mark? I'm pretty sure. Mm, I don't know about that. You think it's less or more? I think it's less. Because really? you can apply to be a public figure, too. And what does the check mean? Doesn't that mean you're a verified account? Yeah. I mean, but I think it also, like, notes that, you know, you have a big following also. Mm. That's just so interesting from a credibility standpoint. When I use, especially with Twitter with a check mark, I use that as a credibility marker, not as like, uh, oh, they have 85,000 followers. Mm, interesting. Maybe, wait, does the check mark even exist on Instagram? Am I wrong? Maybe the check mark doesn't exist. This is really good radio right here. <laughs> Maybe the check mark doesn't exist on Instagram. I don't think it does. All I know is that there's like a public figure thing that you can get okay. that one of my well, students got. At any rate, this question still remains. Like we talk about this in the podcast industry, like what is a lot of listeners and like nobody really knows because we don't talk about it. You know, it's kind of one of right. those things you don't talk about money. Right. And so I'm just curious, like what is considered a lot of followers? Because I think you have a shit ton of followers. Well, not compared to authors who sell books. 
So I have like excuse I me, I'm an author <laughs> and I sell you are, books. You are an author who sells books, but you didn't have to convince an academic press that you had a big Instagram following. That's you know true. what I mean? I think that's really. I know you're into it. I just am like, God, why, why, why is that a thing now? I know it's because capitalism. You got to sell the books, but. Whatever yeah, happened no, to just being I mean, like a credible and a good writer? I'm only into, I mean, I'm not, it's not like I'm into it. I just like don't despise it as much as you. I don't I don't despise being on Instagram as much as you, I guess, is what I'm we're saying. Noted. And for people who are still figuring, like thinking, should I really follow her or not? Rachel does have a very, very vibrant Instagram account and is like always posting. So there's always something fun to look at or political or sexy. So if, any, if you're into <laughs> fun politics or sexiness, then you could follow her. Thanks. And honestly, more of the politics comes out in our FKJ account. So if you're not following that, you should def follow that also at FKJ underscore PhD. Cool. What was that rumbling you just did? Did you just like... Sorry. I moved. I moved. Okay. You know how like you go to New Orleans and they like they make they paint gold on themselves and they look like a statue. Uh huh. Uh-huh. And then that's how I have to be. Yeah. You have to okay. basically paint yourself gold and not move the entire time we record. Okay. Noted. I'm only moving my mouth right now. Will you tell us the amazing <laughs> person that we talked to today? Yes. Just please move. I was just curious. I'm just dis- <laughs> I'm just very curious about sound. I'm not trying to get on you about it. I know. It's all good. So today we're talking with the very, very wonderful Firebrand Rich. We are talking with the very, very wonderful Firebrand Witch, which is run by M- Molly Fran who is an astrologer, tarot reader, idea synthesizer, and writer who is on a daily dash to make meaning of society and human beings through the magic of the planets and the cards. They are a mad agender cyborg witch with a heart of flames committed to supporting humans through their underworld journeys as they rediscover their magic, meaning, and passion for being. You can find their work on thefirebrandwitch.com. Damn, that's that a was good bio. that was the coolest bio I've ever read. It seriously, Molly, you win for best bio. Molly, I'll pay you fifty dollars to write my bio. <laughs> Melody, will you take us to the interview? Hello, Molly. Welcome to Feminist Killjoys PhD. It's good to have you. Thank you. It's so exciting to be here. Oh, good. Mm-hmm. Um, so our first question is just a real basic one. We're just curious how long you've been practicing tarot and astrology. And also, if your practicing of astrology and tarot has coincided with you identifying as a witch or if those things happen at different times. Yeah. Oh, that's an interesting question. Okay. So I've been doing tarot since I was 15. I'm 24 now. And, um, I started like learning tarot because my mom actually, she reads tarot, not like professionally. She just reads for family and friends. And so I kind of like grew up with her doing that. Um, and then I got my first deck at 15 and I've been interested in astrology since I was like 12 when I first went on astro.com and pulled my birth chart. Um, but I've been more like formally seriously, like studying it for the last few years. And that's a really good question. When did I start identifying as a witch? I mean, one of like my common refrains throughout college was saying that I was a witch. (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. um, I kind of feel like it's something that has always been present for me. I feel like my mother is very witchy. Um, but 
really when I like launched um, the Firebrand Witch. So like 2017, that's when I really seriously made it part of like my public self, I think. And it felt really, really empowering. It felt really exciting. And it felt also scary, of course, because there's so many, um, you know, associations with like being a witch that I was afraid of being seen as all sorts of things like, you know, somehow like not smart or, you know, like whatever. So it was difficult, but ultimately it felt really empowering when I kind of embraced that. Yeah. I always feel, I don't know. I just like, am jealous isn't the right word. I'm just like, how special that you had this sort of like matro what's the word matron matrilineal path like I just that's just super cool and I feel like if my mom had been ever given a deck she would be so into it but she just Mm -hmm. hasn't you know hadn't been so anyway I'm just always like I just think that's really cool that you got that you get to share that with your mom really I'm really lucky in that way for sure yeah that's awesome before I ask you more about your specific kind of witch identity, which is a really cool one. Can you, can you just tell us your sun, moon and rising sign? Oh yeah, sure. So I am a Sagittarius sun, Sagittarius moon, and then a Capricorn rising. That was a, yeah, I'm super Sag. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) What is a Capricorn moon? Like what are some elements of that? Mel, Molly is, they said Sagittarius, Sagittarius moon, right? Yeah. Sagittarius. And then I have Capricorn rising. Oh, sorry. Never mind. Oh, I see. (laughs) That's so confusing. I was like, what? I'm not, I told you I'm a dummy. Okay. Uh, so how does Sag Moon show up for you then, Molly? Yeah, um, Sag Moon shows up for me basically as like really, really valuing uh, freedom to move around very much. I think that my Sag Moon is, I mean, I have so much Sagittarius, but I think it's part of what makes me extremely enthusiastic. And it makes my, I think it makes my intuition quite strong in that I just kind of like quickly know things. And I'm quite passionate. I think that the the fiery nature of Sagittarius gives me a really... a a really strong arm of passion. But I think that more than anything else, like to distinguish it between sun and moon, I think that the Sagittarius moon makes me really feel like I need to feel like I have a lot of space (laughs) when I'm in relationship with somebody in any sort of like level. It's really, really actually hard for me to, to feel like people are extremely reliant on me in any way. That's always been a common theme through my life. And I feel Mm. like that's very Sagittarius. It's like, Oh, Mm -hmm. that's too much commitment. (laughs) What Mm -hmm. if I want to (laughs) leave? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I have some special Sagges in my, my life and that makes a lot of sense. Um, (laughs) Okay. So back to sort of, identifying as a witch and we're actually going to talk sort of maybe more broadly about identity and that whole concept in general but you do describe yourself rather perhaps that's more accurate um as a pre-apocalyptic cyborg witch and i would love you to sort of unpack that i've heard you talk about it on other podcasts but i want our listeners to hear all about it and i think our listeners would also be i'm guessing many people who just heard that given our demographic were like cyborg donna haraway cyborg manifesto so i know you've also talked about like how that is or isn't, you know, sort of part of this. So can you just tell us more about that? Yeah. So I feel like my, my like ideas about pre-apocalyptic cyborg witchcraft have come from so many different places and moments. And it kind of just culminated with this moment in this past April or May where 
I, in my personal life, like I feel like I let go of a lot of shame and fear. And of course those are emotions I'll always work through, but I kind of came to this moment where like my whole life, ever since I was a child, I've been very afraid of the end of the world. (laughs) And um, I've been really afraid of like the concept of apocalypse, not as like a moment where the world just like kind of blows up, but just apocalyptic social conditions and like climate conditions. And it feels like we're kind of in that moment right now, right? So I just, through a lot of like personal kind of transformation, I think a lot of honestly, Adrienne Marie Brown's influence, not even necessarily that I was like consuming her work at that point, but just her influence on like discourse and and like emergent strategy and her podcast, How to Survive the End of the World. It just all culminated in this moment where I was like, oh, this is actually, this can be an opportunity. So pre-apocalyptic cyborg witchcraft to me feels like instead of being really afraid and kind of freezing under fear or like blowing up through fear and around the end of the world and all that that entails, like the quote unquote end of the world, um, you sort of just accept it. And you're like, okay, we're at this moment where things are really confusing and they're really scary. And like, there's so much that just feels uncertain. And something I often say about this, like, coming as a person, like I'm 24. And so I feel like growing up, I was, I was kind of told that the world was going to be something that it just really isn't. And I was kind of told that, um, and I think this is true of a lot of people in my like age group, like millennials or whatever, that the world was just going to be something that it is not at this point. And how can we come to accept that and allow what we're moving through to be kind of a process of death and, and grief. And I feel like pre-apocalyptic cyber witchcraft is almost like the witchcraft part is like sort of being a doula between the the old world and ushering in something new and something more aligned with justice and anti-oppression rather than the the furthering of of oppressive systems and capitalism. And the cyborg part is is like, how do we bring technology into the fold? Like we're at this moment where everything that we experience is online. All of our days are filtered through the internet. For, for most people, at least most young people, I would say, um, at least in, in the US, it's like, okay, we're constantly on social media. We're constantly online. How can we utilize technology to the ends of like, to resist, you know what I mean? How can we, how can we manipulate technology so that we can resist these current systems and and institutions and sort of build new structure um, and build community? Yeah, that's my pre-apocalyptic cyborg witchcraft, I think. I think it's totally fascinating and cool. And I, we talked to Casey, who I know you know, last a couple, last week. And I think Casey talked a lot about drawing on the past and, and sort of political elders and ancestors. We had a really cool conversation about that. And yeah. I think that it's interesting to think about drawing on past and future in sort of simultaneous ways, um, because I really like the sort of like tech future orientation that you're thinking of. But it's also like all of the importance of drawing on elders and ancestors as as witches and as just, I think, you know, well, for me, as as pe- as somebody who honors and is driven by by history also. And so I don't know, I'm just thinking through all of those things and trying to put put in conver- put your conversation in conversation with with the other witches we've been talking to and um 
just a lot to think about with that. Yeah, Casey and I are working on sort of building like with with Tess, um, who's City Witch, mm-hmm. where all the three of us are trying to like build the beginnings of sort of like a, a witch kind of union or collective or something like that. Um, and anyway, yeah, Casey is just amazing at how knowledgeable they are about history and how like they really want to make sure that lineage is honored and they just have so much about that. And I love that. And I feel like my brain is usually very future focused and I feel mm-hmm. like I very much think of like futurism and stuff like that. Yeah. 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 So it's just cool. It's just cool to have, um, have these two episodes next to each other. So it's, yeah. it's cool. <laughs> yeah. Shifting a little bit to to the offerings that you have available for people, you offer something called the narrative alchemy. So can you explain what that means and what people could expect if they signed up for it? Narrative alchemy basically is this, it's a 12 week course where we kind of just, we move through the major arcana. Um, it originated from this podcast I had called the major arcana and mental health. And there there's 28 lessons. It takes place over 12 weeks and you move through each card of the major arcana as as though the fool's journey is actually like a healing journey and healing from trauma or or crisis and just the steps that you move through and the lessons that you learn along the way. And the whole goal of narrative alchemy is sort of like to, to offer a space to kind of unpack the unconscious kind of stories that we tell ourselves that can be really limiting or can be really affirming for the purpose of transforming that which is sort of sabotaging um, and kind of keeping you tied down into fear um, and into that sort of trauma trauma space so that you can you can kind of heal and, and move into you can move into something that feels more affirming, and it's it's like a space that allows you to explore um, explore your narrative basically, and just make it more intentional. Yeah, there's 28 lessons, and it takes place like through through email, and there's there's um, audio recordings. There's like eight hours of audio recordings. There's like o- over 250 pages of a workbook. You do for each lesson about a card. You do um, two tarot spreads to kind of unpack that story and build a relationship with the card. That's rad. I think that's a really good transition to if you're open to it, talking about this incredible article essay rather that you just published. Partly because I think you're. Narrative alchemy sounds very much like um, shifting to sort of an empowerment framework versus, I guess, victim framework. And I think that it was even scary for me to, like, have that come out of my mouth because the right uses that rhetoric that, like, you know, the left thinks that we're all victims. And I'm obviously not saying it in that way. And also, I think you're making some really provocative points about how we should actually maybe take some of these things seriously and into consideration. So mm-hmm. this essay that you wrote is called Scrup. Okay. Help me pronounce this scrupulosity. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Scrupulosity. Oh. All right. Scrupulosity. I know what, <laughs> I know what it means. I just didn't know how to pronounce it. Yeah. Scrupul- so it's called scrupulosity, feminism, and the end of my obsessive affair with online social justice. So I would love it if you would share what you're thinking through in that piece. Yeah. Wow. What am I thinking through? I'm thinking through so many things. I actually, the original title was a collection of my most anti-feminist thoughts, which I was like, that's too much. Because that, it's not even an anti-feminist. It's not anti-feminist. But it was It's sort of just like this conglomeration of different of just different things that I've been obsessing over, honestly, for the seven years that I've been actively involved in like online social justice culture. And I just, I've come to this point where um, there's a lot of, of, how do I even, 
a lot of different ideas and tensions that I feel like my, my brain is wired to try and reconcile and to try and like get closure where there, where there isn't any or certainty where there isn't really any. Um, and I just think that, that there's, there's a lot about, um, this current iteration of social justice as it relates to like identity politics and like neoliberalism and kind of how those two things overlap and the way that we kind of conflate individual, like the individual level with the systemic level and then personal responsibility for what ought to be sort of a systemic response to a systemic issue maybe, um, or collective response to a systemic issue and just how that manifests on a psychological level being part of, of a culture and a community that is so um, militant and sort of rigid about about ideology and, and dogma that comes with ideology. And yeah, yeah, I guess that's kind of sums up what that's about. And I recommend that everybody go read it. We'll definitely link it in the show notes and in our newsletter. It's full of a lot of things that I was like vigorously nodding along to and some other things that I think being so I'm 33 I'm about to be 34 in January and so I was and Melody as well we have very pretty similar and Melody step in if you want to sort of nuance your personal experience with it but okay I feel like Mel we both sort of came of age politically in a time when the internet existed but most of our I think organizing and activist experience was not online there were like maybe listservs or something that existed, but there, there there just wasn't this kind of like online social justice space the way that it exists now. And I feel personally really, really grateful for that because I think that I, I was able, I'm able to see a lot of what exists now with some more perspective. And, uh, and sometimes I'm still sort of swept in with a lot of the guilt that you described, Molly, yeah. of of that culture. But I just sort of constantly go back to like some of my most important mentors when I was in the midst of my like being radicalized, really. And I had uh, this woman named Marisol Morales, who I love very much, who is this amazing Puerto Rican feminist who took this white girl under her wing and was like and gave her, you know, gave me patience. And like, um, I just remember her talking to me about white guilt. And she was like, I just don't have time for your like this. This your white guilt is not helpful. She's like, I want you to be part of this struggle with me. But just please don't burden me with your guilt. And I just like always go back to her voice saying that whenever I start to feel guilty, because I'm like, I just like I just there's it's not useful. And I know that's easier said than done. But all of this is to say that, yeah, I just I, I think maybe one concrete thing that I'm thinking of is like the sort of constant call for reparations for, you know, there'll be sort of like fundraisers for for people who are who are in need and, you know, often, you know, low income POC folks, which is totally a wonderful, I think, way to try to support people in the here and now. But yeah. that push for, you know, for me, for example, and I've been sh struggling financially for the past couple of years, not nearly as much as other people. And I'm, you know, but it was, you know, those, those qu the questions that I have in my head when it's like, okay, I have to help support my mom. I have to pay my bills. I have my student loans coming back this month. Like, you know, all of these things that are swirling in my head, but it's like, but I have to give money because I have to be a good white person. I have to be a good white person. I have to be a good white person. And just like the, the way that that takes up space that ultimately if all of the white people who were feeling guilty in that moment where they're, whether or not they're going to go to Venmo or not, would be organizing to like make the state pay reparations, you know, make the structures yeah. Yeah. like enable, you know, because it's exactly what you're describing. It becomes like, we need to support marginalized people through these individual donations, which is really just philanthropic capitalism, right? It's like, let's keep yeah. the system the way it is, but we'll just make 
people who maybe have money, kind of, like, maybe not nearly as much as the people who should be paying for it, like the state, yeah. <laughs> um, right. do that. So that seems like maybe a concrete example of some of, is, is that right? Am I, I mean, is that, cause that's something that came to mind when I was reading your piece. Yeah. I think that that's, that's one, um, really useful example. I think I want to highlight that, like the guilt that arises when, you know, if there's a call for reparations on an individual level in that way, I feel like that's not so much the sort of guilt component that I'm trying to like point to as like what has caused me kind of, uh, so much personal tension. It's more of, it's more of the call out aspect, I think. Mm -hmm, And it's mm -hmm. more of the punishment that, that can follow if you do that or, well, not really that because I've actually never seen or experienced somebody get harangued or whatever for like uh, not having the means to donate. But maybe that's happened. But I guess I want to just say that I think that like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, it's more of the call out aspect for me personally. And, yeah. And we've yeah, talked yeah, yeah. about we've talked about call out culture a lot on the show and how yeah. we're I think. Oh, it's like uh, during episode 100, it like is our one of our platform statements that we are not into call out culture at all. We're more into call in culture. And I and I'm so sorry that you have to because you're, you know, a little bit younger than us and you your version of social justice and feminism is just so much different, not so much, but fairly different than ours in terms of like the internet bullying that happens with the call out culture. And I see it happen all the time. Like there's some main players in Minneapolis that I watch, either they post something and they post it in a way in which like, if you don't agree with me or a piece of shit, or they'll call people out really intensely on online and it's just it's just not helpful because we're all supposed to be in community together and like you said in your essay and people say this to me all the time and I'm working on it but they say oh I like walk on eggshells around you you know and that's a big red flag Mm. because that means but at the same time you know my brothers have said that to me and I think it's more in the delivery of the substance that I'm telling them because they've never said that they don't like that I've corrected them on certain things. It's just the delivery, you know? So if they say, I don't I don't see the big deal with the ma- the Native American mascot. And I'm like, what did <laughs> yeah. you say? I get that because it's it's the rage that I feel inside and I'm not processing it correctly. So I'm I feel like I've been on both sides of the coin. But it's just there's something going on in internet culture. And I'm so glad that you're calling it out because we're supposed to be coming together. We're not supposed to be call like we're not supposed to be breaking each other down. And like there's just better ways to have these kinds of conversations. And so it's just such a bummer to hear that it's going on because feminists have always fought with each other, you know, like the second waves couldn't stand the third Mm -hmm. waves and vice versa. You know, it's like, and people within the second wave couldn't stand each other too. Yes. Yes. Um, right. So there's always feminist infighting, but this just seems like way more personal and bitey than is Mm -hmm. necessary for the work that we're trying to do. Yeah, I I totally, I think that, I mean, well, I guess I don't know comparatively, but it definitely feels that way being in it. (laughs) It definitely feels that way. Yeah. Um, and I feel like a lot of it, like having to do with social, I mean, yeah, social media is that I talk, I think I've talked about this in the past. I've like written a little bit about this is like, um, virality and how much just like the, I actually think a lot of it is a function of how this current kind of iteration of social media is structured, which is that it prioritizes virality rather than communication. Like 
when I think of like the early 2000s internet, cause I've like been on the internet forever and it like, it raised me like 2000, like three and 2004, 2000, all the way to like 2006, maybe we were mostly most, most like socializing was taking place in forums. And I actually think that the structure of the forum is and message boards are just like so much more conducive to building coalition and actually like talking to each other versus like really Twitter or Facebook yeah. or Instagram, which mm-hmm. is driven by virality. And it's like in order and more than that, right. People like influencers have a profit motive behind yeah. going viral. And so they need to produce this content that is it's fear mongering in many ways. It's really like morally directive. It's very confidently outraged. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we all need to make money and make a living. I don't think that there's, I, I have, you know, opinions about, I don't think that there's necessarily anything wrong with like getting paid. Of course. Mm-hmm. Um, I get paid for what I do. I'm self-employed, but I think that that's just, that's something that happens and that's sort of some, some context. And I think that it's ultimately not good. And I think that that's why it's an anti-capitalist issue to me Yeah, is, is that yeah. like, this is all of a function of capitalism and especially neoliberalism, because when I see so many takedowns of people that are like, um, basically being taken down for being a prime example of being, you know, like a cis man who's being misogynist or a white person who's being like the prime example of like, uh, you know, like white women who uphold white supremacy and sort of videos that can go viral like that. Often what I'm seeing is, is it feels like it's a lot of a byproduct of neoliberalism. First of all, it's like entertainment and theater. And second of all, it's like where we're, putting personal responsibility on, on people, individuals for what is really like a a deeply entrenched historical systemic issue that has a systemic basis in capitalism. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and I feel like I just have come to a boiling point where I'm like, I can't do this anymore. It doesn't, it doesn't fit. It doesn't feel right. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, just to add to the list of things like the anti-capitalistic, it's also very much performative too. And Mm -hmm. so even if you take away the money aspect of it, this performativity that has to happen online all the time, as you mentioned earlier, I think is like really crucial. So even if you're dealing with people that don't sell, you know, their Instagram space for ads or whatever, it's, it's a performance. Like you can say whatever you want, you know, like you can, craft the perfect sentence online but then let's Mm -hmm. put you out into the public and what are you going to do at a bar when you see a dude creeping on a woman right are you going to do anything about it you know but you act you act like you're this like amazing person online but like for me it's more about the action not what you say online so i'm just i'm feeling your rage i'm expressing things thank you for listening yeah (laughs) absolutely totally the performativity is so crucial like yeah well and it's like thinking (laughs) Yeah, but I think it's like we the people we see the most are the people who have more followers and that's totally related to capitalism and then it's like there's something that twists up our brain chemistry to be like we need to be like them. So yeah. I feel like capital is still kind of driving it a little bit. Um yeah. but Mel, I mean Mel, I'm agreeing with you that it's yes, of course. the sort of psychology of the performativity but it's like partly because of the 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 context that we're in where capitalism is driving these kinds of these kinds of things. And I think like an important difference for me is like that I get, and this is, this is like an age old, again, I don't want to blame the internet for this. I don't want to sound like 
things were better back in my day. <laughs> like, as Melody said, infighting has existed, whether yeah. it's feminism specifically or left. I mean, obviously, like leftists fucking hate, you know, leftists, anarchists and communists have been hating each other, you know, since the dawn of time. So mm-hmm. that yeah. exists. But but there was so I just do feel like there was so much more coalition building. I mean, my meetings were the meetings I would go to in Chicago were full of anarchists and communists who ultimately would fight about Lenin, basically. But they like at the end of the day, they were going to like make the, you know, out of Iraq banner together, whatever. Right. Um, And so I just feel like coalition building was a lot stronger. And so anyway, my point in saying this is that I feel like a lot of um, social justice accounts are often attacking like progressive people, like people on the left. Right. It's just people, Mm -hmm. you know, whether it's like, you know, white women or, and I, and I, it's scary to say this out loud, right? Cause we're three white people, not all yeah. women, but, um, yeah. three white people who are having this conversation. Um, but it's, but ultimately it's like, so I, so it's not just white women that I'm talking about, but it's, you know, I could even say this as a working class person, you know, somebody attacking like a, a rich individual, like a rich person, like a bougie person, whatever, yeah. like that becomes, if that bougie person, if that quote unquote bougie person, that rich person or that white woman ultimately wants to be on the right side of history and like ultimately wants to like build a world without oppression, but isn't doing it exactly correctly. Like if you really care about movement building and challenging power, you need to invite that person in, not fucking tell them they're a piece of shit. Right. Yeah. So I think that's sort of like, it's it's a little bit harder to get upset at the callouts of like, I don't know. Like obviously nobody's gonna cry rivers that Brett Kavanaugh is like getting you know oh, yeah. shit yeah. talked about him. Like, right, but that's right. not that's not what this, that's not what we're talking about here. No. So I just yeah. like that's like it pointing out, you know. Yeah, and on that point, like I think that that's what and I wrote I wrote an article about this actually, and I kind of talked about this. It was like it, the title of the article is like uh, what is it like a call for trauma informed social justice or something like that. Um, but anyway, basically it was like call outs are really useful when it's against like a public figure or somebody or like an institution. Right. So like calling out your university or calling out like, you know, Kavanaugh. Um, and it can also be useful in community as like a last resort, you know, um, in the case of like, ab- like, like, you know, abuse, like, mm-hmm. um, or assault. And I've seen that happen and it's really important that that happens and it's, it's worked in many ways to sort of get justice or, you know, um, but I, what I, what happens now is that we sort of just default to calling out and we sort of default straight to, um, actually like even speaking on the history a little bit, I just want to say, I was going to use this word trashing, like we trash people. And I read this article like last year called trashing the dark side of sisterhood by a feminist, Joe Freeman. Um, Mm, Yeah. Yeah. Wrote about this in 1976 and I read it and I started crying because I was like, (laughs) this is like the same thing. Like this is call out culture. It's really interesting how it sort of has a new manifestation. It's just interesting how, yeah, I mean, it happens, you know, and it, it does, it's, it's not unique, but I think, I think that it's more insidious maybe because of social media and it's more rampant because of social media. You you also sort of specifically sort of address identity politics. So I would love if you could sort of expand on what you were saying on how that emerges in sort of, I guess, social justice online culture in particular. Okay, so first of all, I actually just recently learned that the like the origin of the phrase identity politics was 
it's like it was coined by the um, the Kombahi River Collective. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know that. And so actually it like has roots in like black liberation um, and like black socialist women. What So I just think it's interesting to like point out that lineage. But now its use is like totally different. And the way that I understand identity politics and the way that I kind of use it when I'm like critiquing like online social justice is that it it feels like it boils down to two, my two main qualms are that we kind of center, so we di- we center discussion on identity, which like, you know, it includes gender or race or sexuality or size. And we do so without really, str- I don't know, like a really clear kind of uh, collectively agreed upon awareness of the capitalist system that we're operating in um, when we're talking about identity. Then the second thing is that, it feels like we often, I kind of talked about this a little bit before, but like we conflate the individual and individual and personal responsibility with the system and like systems of oppression. And what happens when we do that often is like call out culture, which then perpetuates kind of relational abuses um, that can be, I think, pretty psychologically damaging on a, on a personal level. And then like on a movement level, not a lot really gets done. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes total sense. And I'm really glad that you brought up its roots in the Combahee River Collective. Um, there's an amazing book that everybody should read called How We, well, everybody should read this, the Combahee River Collective Statement because it it's amazing, mm-hmm. but, and it's short and you should, you can read it in like at one sitting, but then there's a book called How We Get Free, which um, Kianga Yamada Taylor just published a, about a year ago with in, doing interviews with members of the Combahee River Collective, basically, and addressing identity politics in particular in, in both what they meant by it, which was an analysis of identity that was rooted in an, in the context of capitalism, which is exactly what you said, compared to sort of how it's how it how it's emerged today, which is exactly what you're critiquing as well. I think that the beauty of of the original intention of com- of identity politics was that it was like we need to address the distinct ways that people who may have unique positionalities in the case of the Combahee River Collective, Black lesbian women, that capitalism uniquely and distinctly targets and harms people based on those positions. But it was still all about this foundation of capitalism. And so I think when people accuse oftentimes Marxists of being class reductionists, like there's so much space in history for a critique, you know, anti-capitalism to to be or to to that that struggle is also attention attuned to people's positions in terms of race and gender and sexuality and so on. And so it's very much been lost. Melody, do you want to jump in? Sorry, I feel like I've been eagerly jumping in. That's fine. That's what I usually do. It's great that we're (laughs) exchanging roles. No, I was just thinking, because I unfortunately caught the Glenn Beck show today on the radio. Mm-hmm. And and so I was thinking about the some of my students too, in which they critique identity politics, especially when we get into representational issues, you know, so it's it's been I think we've been talking about the critique of it within our circles. But then there's also in the conservative and libertarian communities as well, they like they cannot stand identity politics, you know, they think that it's too reductionist, they think that, you know, we're not going to talk about it just because it's a black guy who got who got killed, you know, it's just because you're a woman doesn't you know, and so there's that whole critique as well. And I think we've been talking about it and not giving examples. So I wanted to make sure that I gave some examples. So the critique of Black Lives Matter being identity politics being like, everybody gets killed by the police. Why do we have to focus on on black people right now? So that would be kind of an anti identity politic thing or any kind of general like feminism too. just, 
you are who you are because you're a woman and we're fighting back because we're all oppressed as women. And, you know, people on the right will roll their eyes and think like, why aren't you working harder? Or like, there's nothing inherently wrong with you being a woman. But what they're missing, though, is the systemic issues that are going on that create that oppression. But that's like, you know, three layers down for them. And I don't know if, you know, it's going to take a while for them to understand that. I just want to throw that out, too, as an example of a critique of identity politics, because I'm way into identity politics. Like I'm, I'm fine with them. And so I really enjoy hearing about the critiques and critiquing them as well. So and I think, Molly, this is getting this is sort of a getting again, getting back to your narrative of alchemy program. And also what you're writing in the essay, like, the right has accused the left of being whiny little victim babies for, you know, ever. And I think another difference between my enculturation into the left, into radical politics, was learning about my my elders as the most incredible, resilient, strong, empowered, badass humans. All of the people I sort of look up to as sort of like my working class elders who were, you know, occupying factory floors and the women who were giving speeches about, you know, Emma Goldman talking about her body's not property, you know, back in the fucking turn of the century, like all of these incredibly, incredibly strong people who were talking about impression, but it, oppression, but in a way that was like so full of life and resilience and and not victimhood. Like there, there felt there was nothing victimy about how I learned like left history. Right. And I think that that's so. So for me, that's always felt like not, you know, I'm like, well, we'll fuck that. But I but I do see that when we when we constantly talk about oppression without thinking about the potential for resilience sort of amidst and in spite of Melody and I talk a lot about agency on the show, like that that agency can, can exist even within this and that it has to. Otherwise, like they're just going to keep winning. Right. If we're satisfied with the role of being only oppressed, if that's our only point of point of identity within this system than that, then they win, right? Uh, versus like, how can we still tap into power amidst this really, really fucked up system? Absolutely. And the point about victimhood always feels really, that definitely for me also feels like difficult to navigate for so many reasons. But I was actually the, like a few weeks ago, maybe I was listening to Assad Hader, who is on, I don't remember, I think it's like The Dig or something. He was talking about, he just he just put out a new book unmasking, I think it's unmasking identity or something, or a case of mistaken identity in the age of Trump, where he actually talks a lot about this. And his writing has actually, I think, solidified and formalized my opinions. But anyway, what he was saying in the in the podcast, and I probably am gonna not sum this up great. So <laughs> but he he said it so eloquently. He was talking about like how um how kind of the 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 merging of like neoliberalism and how it's informed identity politics has it's just it's done so in the particular way where um when we emphasize identity politics without a, without an understanding of capitalism um and how it functions and how it like produces you know oppression basically it can get boiled down to victimhood in such a way that like we we rely on the state to give us what we need instead of realizing that we collectively can sort of be empowered and resist um, something. That's sort of what I took away from what he was saying. He used different words. Um, he did use the words victimhood and it was, it was really interesting. His point was really interesting. So um, if people are curious maybe to hear more about that, I really liked what he said. Um, yeah. Totally. We'll make sure we add that to the, to the reading list that we 
include yeah. with our episode episode guides. Um, yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah. And I mean, well, go ahead. Who, who was about to talk? Oh, I could say another thing. I think actually something that you were talking about or, well, okay. How do I, how do I segue into this? Um, another, I guess another point kind of going back to the Kumbahi River Collective sort of, you know, first understanding or, or statement on what identity politics is. Um, I was also listening to an episode of Kianga Yamada Taylor, who was talking about this. And I think it was the same podcast, like The Dig, and sort of how she explained it. Um, and I think this is really interesting on the point of like, quote unquote, victimhood, is that we've kind of turned the the original um, definition of what identity politics is and why why they like kind of pursued that understanding, we've turned it into people without oppressed identities will never understand or have a genuine stake in eradicating oppression. So we must do it alone. Um, I think I quoted that. Mm. I have this. Yeah, but actually, it originated within the context of like a politics that was rooted in solidarity and coalition building, which actually is just very, in my opinion, opposite to the current understanding mm-hmm. of identity and struggle. And I think that this is also something that As- Assad Hader talks about, which, oh, actually, yeah, I think that he talks about it too, but I don't even remember exactly where I was going to go with that. But yeah, yeah. And I think that that's important. I feel like there's this really, and I think I, Adrian Marie Brown's work also kind of t- points to this, where there's almost just like a pessimism and there's just this, uh, a feeling that we can't trust each other and that we just if you don't, if you don't have the oppressed identity, then you actually will not show up. And I think that that, uh, you know, that kind of, you can see that in like allyship and how we understand allies and like the really heated discourse that exists around allyship. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also just to, Mel, I'm going to jump back to your point. Cause I saw your Instagram story today about Glenn Beck. He was talking specifically about like gender identity and respecting pronouns. Right. And it's like, there are so many different levels to this. And I think what the internet ends up doing is removing actual, like whether it's class struggle or any other way you want to frame, like on the ground organizing for actual shifts in power versus like making people's lives more livable and, you know, shit talking, whatever memes on the internet. I mean, they can be a good laugh, I guess, but like, they're not, they're not really rooted or connected to sort of like, you know, struggle on the ground necessarily. But, but like Mel, what you're saying, like we can also, but simultaneously, it's like, we've been saying both and this whole month in these conversations, like we can both respect people's fucking pronouns and make people's lives more livable. And also know that memes about cis people being assholes, which sure, I mean, there's a whole lot of cisgender assholes out there. Like, I'm not going to deny that. Like, (laughs) that's also not like rooted in the liberation of people from patriarchal gender norms. Like, I don't, do you know what I mean? Like, I'm not saying that totally correctly, but I just think that there's space for identity politic conversations happening on the level of like, like I said, making people's lives more livable versus internet callouts versus actual on the ground organizing. And I think those are all very different realms and they, yeah, we need to like know that, I guess. Does that make sense? Yes. And I, just to circle back to the victimization thing that y'all were talking about, that's exactly what Glenn Beck's, sorry that I have to talk about him, but it was a good example. His 
the root of his argument was, you know, he's like, oh, well, well, we don't call you by the right pronoun. And, you know, I'm a dragon. And so you have to call me dragon now. Okay. Oh, jeez. Yeah. And that's why I said in my Instagram story, I was like, it was like he was, he was bullying an eight year old who has braces or something like it was just ridiculous. But at Mm -hmm. the root of it, he was making fun of the assumed victimization that people that are gender non-binary and and then he would make fun of the LGBTQ plus AY, blah, blah, blah. But that there's a victimization aspect to it. That's what he was reading into it. And that's what he was really digging into. And so I think it is important for us to remember that that's what the right uses. And so as a strategy, not to say that like what they said is totally, that is fucked up and like not okay. And, you know, bordering on like, like hate speech, but knowing that that's what they, they, pull from, then we have to minimize, even though we know we've been victimized, you know, because of our oppressive state, like we have to find publicly, like, you know, find different language and keep an empowering language to it because it's good for all of us, you know? Um, And I know that people can be like, no, it's important for us to talk about victimization, of course, but as a strategy to like, get the right to shut the fuck up, you know, don't feed it, don't feed them things, right? Which national or international pronoun day is not doing. But of course, you know, he got on the like, why don't you, you have to call call out culture. I actually think there's like a really good segue here in back into magic, because Mel, everything you said is like, yeah, I totally agree with that. It's like, we have to think in terms of strategy, we have to think in terms of rhetoric, like this is what like political movement building requires. And also like to take this into trauma-informed healing magic. This is what, going back to Adrienne Marie Brown, what you what you pay attention to grows. If we think about using energy, and so now we're getting back into Melody, I don't know, you may or may not buy into this. I'm going to talk to Molly, who I think might be a little bit more <laughs> open to this. You know, it's like we need to build energy that, you know, not in like a law of attraction way, but in a like, vibe. you know, vib- I do believe like vibrationally, if we're like vibrationally asserting more power than that will be matched by the universe. And that's something where we're, I'm going to lose a lot of leftists. Oh, listen give here. me a break. <laughs> just kidding. Are you? You're no, kidding. I'm just acting. I'm just performing. Yeah. The, yes. somebody, somebody listening to this show probably said that, but Molly, do you, I mean, can you, can you maybe expand on that from like a witch perspective, like an energy perspective? Like, is that part of the narrative alchemy program? Like, No, no, you're not all off. I think that that's, I don't know how much I personally, I mean, I, I love what Adrienne Marie Brown says about that, but I also am very like, um, I get wary about law of attraction, but I do agree with you. But I, I think the way that I, that I think of things, the way my brain works, I, I tend to like think of it almost from like a, like a psychological kind of feeling even more than magical. Mm -hmm. Um, and just how like, even psychologically, like if you are surrounded by, you know, media or propaganda or, or people and everything that's telling you that like you are, are victimized and that, um, you know, just that has a really pessimistic feeling or energy or vibe to it. Like you, you get stuck there. You just, you get stuck there. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, we can like, like you say, like both and right. Like we can acknowledge that we have been harmed and we have been traumatized and we have been oppressed and we can also affirm that we still have power, especially collectively. And I think that mm-hmm. that's where I really like what Adrian Marie Brown says, like, right, we can put our attention on that and then it can grow while still holding the truth of the pain and the, 
and the the experience of having been victimized. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I just want to clarify, I am super skeptical of law of attraction as well. I just no, yeah, yeah. was making, was making, I was, I, I literally, I, yeah, to say like, not in that way. And also yeah. like, I'm going to start talking about vib- matching vibrations. So it might sound a little like it. <laughs> no, I totally yeah. I feel that. And I think that yeah. the, the vibration that that's real. I mean, I, I personally, I don't know. I do yeah. believe it and then I don't. And then there's, yeah. So yeah, I, I either, really, either way, the psychology is also saying the exact same thing that we could talk about in terms of vibrations. And so like, that's also great to focus on too, I think. Amazing. Whew, that was uh that was a lot. That was Hi Killjoys. It's Rachel here popping in with a reminder on some places you can find us on the interweb and how you can support us. So you can always subscribe to us on your favorite podcast application. And of course you get extra FKJ points. If you leave us a review on iTunes, it is a wonderful way to spread the word and gain new followers. And we really appreciate it on the social media tip. We, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can like our Facebook page and you can also join our closed community page, Feminist Killjoys Community WTF Power. We have a Spotify mixtape that you can search out Feminist Killjoys PhD mixtape. And if you want to support us financially and you have some extra dollars, you could donate to our Patreon or as a one time thing on our website, just click on the birdie to make a one time PayPal donation. Patreon donors also get access to the Killjoy Review newsletter. And of course, you can also always email us at fkj.phd at gmail.com and back to the show. And again, I just want to thank you for, you know, courageously writing all of that because it's, it's scary to write in on, you know, in online social justice culture critiques of it. Right. So yeah. thank you again so much for being on the show. Can you please tell our listeners where they can find you if they want to follow you or read your articles or learn more about your work? Yeah, my website is thefirebrandwitch.com, and then you can find me on Instagram at thefirebrandwitch. And you are doing readings through October, and people can sign up for Narrative Alchemy through October, and then everything else is TBD, right? Yeah, everything else is sort of TBD. Yeah. Cool. Love it. That's an exciting, exciting stage to be in. Yeah. (laughs) What what card do you, okay, one one last witchy question. What card do you feel like you're in right now? Oh wow. What card am I in? I oof, I um, well my my card of this year is is the hermit. So mm-hmm. I think that I'm feeling that big. I'm definitely sort of like going in. I mean, I start off my whole like scrupulosity feminism blah 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 piece kind of saying like who am I? Like I don't remember who I was before so like before yeah. ideology and I feel like I'm just in this moment where I'm really trying to remember who I am when I'm when the dogma goes away and when the ideology mm-hmm. kind of takes yeah. second seat. Yeah. 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 Amazing. Well, thank you. This was thank great. You. We're so yeah. appreciative and thank it. you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, thanks awesome. Molly. And what of your dreams and your nightmares? <laughs> If you ever imagine that fingers are at your throat throttling you, don't twist and turn. Wake up. Open your eyes. I cannot speak
Everybody at, at, okay, a little <laughs> early on that.